it's time to turn out the lights, grab some popcorn, and watch some horrible horror movies. This is the Terrible Terror Podcast. Each episode, I delve into the world of terrible horror movies. Why do I do it? Well, can't really explain it, but I love these horrible movies. If you've made a horror movie on your phone, or made your own special effects MacGyver style, please send it my way. Now, what do you get when you take four stories about zombies, ghosts, monsters, and Santa's best bad buddy? Why, you get a new holiday classic, A Christmas Horror Story. Well, this is a new one for me, and possibly for you as well, huh? It was submitted by listener Crystal, and I had never heard about this film until she recommended it to me. A straight-to-video release, yes, I'm showing my age, it's a little difficult on how to describe this film. It's a set of stories, but unlike an anthology movie like VHS or Trick or Treat, this film runs all the stories concurrently and kind of weaves them together through the characters that, somehow, they're all connected directly. Well, except for Santa. Uh, But we'll get more on that later. I guess being a jolly old fat guy is a good connection as any. And all these stories do take place on Christmas Eve as well. So instead of going through the film as the movie does, I'm going to tell each tale one by one and bridge them together by Shatner. Yes, Mr. William Shatner. In this movie, he plays the role of Dangerous Dan, a radio show host for the town of Bailey Downs that breaks up the film with his enthusiasm for Christmas. Merry Christmas, Bailey Downs. It's Christmas Eve. The most 
wonderful time of the year. And I'll tell you what, listeners. Dangers Dan is going to tell you a secret. I love Christmas. There, I said it. And I don't care who knows it, because I love tinsel. I love Rudolph. I love cranberries. I love baby Jesus. Before he went all hippie with the sandals and the long hair. It seems out of place right now, but his scenes make a lot more sense later on in the film. I wasn't sure at first if he was like the comic relief, but though chuckle-worthy at times, they're not that funny to say the least. We're also introduced to Norman, who is Dangerous Dan's uh, weather guy, and he wants he wants to get him to speak on the air. Dangerous Dan wants to get him to speak on the air, but instead, he gets a nice little card of Fuck Christmas. Oh, Hey, Norman, <laughs> a little Christmas card. This is exciting. What's it going to say? Fuck Christmas. Oh, Norman. Susan, did you see that? You know who saw that? Jesus saw that. And his dad, he, he saw that. All right, folks, looks like uh, Norman's hitting the trails. So uh, we'll just get this Christmas party started without him. So, since that part was visual, I had to kind of add that in there. But he does take the notepad, write Fuck Christmas on it, and slams it into the screen. And with that, the film actually begins. Again, I'm not breaking apart these stories like the film does. I just find it a little easier to review the film this way. Uh, each story has a centralized theme to it, and each one has a connection to the others in some way. With that said, I'm going to start with what I call Story 1 and move on from there. Should also be noted that technically the film started on story four with Santa's Fortress of Solitude, which I guess is a thing you need if you're going to live in the North Pole. Seriously, it's a freaking castle that is a pretty bad CG even for 2015. I just called this story number one as I didn't know if I was going to see more Santa until the end, and I believed that each story was going to be self-contained itself. I was wrong, but I ain't changed my format, so yeah. I'll also be cutting in uh, Shatner's parts between stories. So, let's finish with the first uh, Shatner scene. All right, folks, looks like uh, Norman's hitting the trails. So, uh, we'll just get this Christmas party started without him. Yes, sir. We're going to share the spirit. We're going to deck some halls. I'm going to get Susan under the mistletoe. And you, my little elves, you're going to listen to one of my favorite songs. So here's to the season. Here's to you, Bailey Dow. Man, I feel sorry for Susan. Well, the first story, it centers around three kids that are trying to report on the story of these two kids that were killed the previous Christmas. The girl in the group, Molly, has a police video of the crime scene investigation. This happened in the school that they all go to, and since Molly obtained the footage illegally, they need to break into the restricted area of the school, and for some reason the cameraman named Dylan, his girlfriend is able to secure the keys to get them there. When she finally does show up, she's greeted appropriately by Molly. You're late, bitch. Sorry. Dad pulled this family trip out of his ass like an hour ago. Damn, why do you have to be so harsh, man? Maybe she's just jealous that Dylan is all over like a stripper at a bachelor party. I mean, the moment Caprice shows up, and we're talking about her in story two, Dylan's hands are all up in that ass. It's like, just fucking get it over with. She can't stay long, and so she goes with her family, who we will talk about more later on, too. It should be also noted that the sound guy, Ben, also has his thing for Molly, but I'm not sure what will come of that. 
who wouldn't want the cameraman? I mean, he's so dreamy and cute, and all the sound guy does is listen and be nerdy. Though, he does look like some teen heartthrob himself. Uh, but I think I'm going way off topic here. So in the school, they begin to start their report. Christmas. Usually a time of joy and celebration, but for St. Joseph's Academy, a time of mourning. Exactly one year ago, last Christmas Eve, the school was the scene of an unimaginable crime when two of its students, Connor and Jenna, seen here, were found murdered in cold blood. With the killer still at large, the atmosphere here in Bailey Downs is truly grim this holiday season. I'm Molly Simon, and this is Horror in the Hallway. What kind of name is that? I mean, was it that horrible? I I guess, I mean, the one kid was only crucified to the wall, and she was hung in the rafters. Still, that's a horrible name for a story. It's like calling a podcast Terrible Terror or some shit like that. I should mention that this film has a lot, and I mean a lot, of jump scares in it. So much that I actually started a counter. And I'll let you know by the end of the video, or the podcast, I should say, how many I actually was able to count. And I think I missed some. Well, in the video that they showed earlier, there was this one girl that, uh, the the, the jump scare that got me, I should say, is the girl falling from the ceiling. I didn't really expect it, and uh, so it did scare me. And it's rare that a horror movie on, like, when you're watching by yourself and TV does that to me. And so, even though that one was good, the rest weren't so good. Uh, Well, they were predictable. Anyway, so Ben hears a noise through his sound equipment, which is also a running theme in this one, uh, and it turns out that the principal is running around the halls going through the school for some reason. This causes the kid to run to the restricted area and hide from him. What I didn't understand at first is that that wasn't a hiding spot necessarily, but that's where they really wanted to be. It's weird that they seem like they're just trying to hide and like fumbling to get the keys to get in there, but in actuality, they're just trying to get into the restricted area as fast as possible. They make it to the room where the kids were killed, but not before Dylan do- tries to make a joke, but it all goes flat. You could be a bride of Christ too, Molly. You've got the whole virgin thing going on. Actually, this is where they kept the unmarried girls who got pregnant. In the room, they film a little bit, but Ben notices the writing on the wall that they saw in the video hasn't been fully cleaned from the wall itself. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, about the birth of Jesus. Now, I should mention here, and I kind of glossed over it for a second, they're going downstairs into this restricted area so they could take the same footage that was in the police video that Molly had gotten illegally. So they actually went to the room where the people were killed. And uh, that's when they saw the writing hadn't been removed. So after getting kind of freaked out, they try to leave the area, but alas, they're locked in. None of the keys they have on them works, and of course, the cell phones don't work. I kind of really wish that films would just stop this. I understand that in this day and age that everyone is going to have a damn cell phone on them, but not magically or magically not working phones with full bars is really fucking annoying. Just, like, break them with spirit powers, at least. Since nothing works, the three decide to find a place to stay for the night, and they run across the school's old nativity scene. This is a nativity scene. The school didn't put it up this year. You can't openly display a nativity scene anymore. It's the war on Christmas. Oh, fuck you! I'm so tired of this war on Christmas crap, even in the fucking movies. 
I know it's supposed to be, like, groan-worthy, but it really does get out of hand. Uh, first Santa slay, and now this. I'm just glad the Thanksgiving didn't have a bitch about not eating turkey as a holiday. And, uh, I'm not gonna get off topic. So, there's some weird long speech that Ben gives about how he'd normally be able to open a gift, eat some pizza, and have some champagne on Christmas Eve. And, lo and behold, Dylan just happens to have some candy canes on him and gives him a pair. Then they begin to wonder who left them locked in this part of the school. If he comes back... Him. The guy who killed Jenna and Connor, what if he comes back tonight? I mean, we're trapped down here. And there's a psychopath on the loose. Psycho's already here. Principal Harrod. I'm sure he locked the door on us. Who else could it be? I get that he's creepy. Okay, but th that doesn't mean he's a killer. Then what's he doing here on Christmas Eve? Sure, that poor old principal has a grudge against them breaking into the school during winter break, only to leave them for the demise. Or maybe they're going to pull off the principal's mask and reveal that it was old man Winters trying to bleed the town dry for the insurance money. You know, killing kids for pure profit is not the most uh, or is the most obscure way possible that would not make really any sense to anyone with the right mind. Well, suddenly Dylan has to pee and decides that he's going to leave the group for the bathroom down the hall. Surprisingly, the bathroom still has soap. It's weird. Well, we get a couple more images of a creepy young lady, mostly with her head down, doing the whole ring girl thing. Uh, ben and Molly are talking uh, some more when suddenly the young girl pops up behind Ben, and then Molly goes into an epileptic shock. Man, didn't you learn nothing from RDJ? Never going to full shock. Also, I have to say that I was amused by the when they put this jump scare in the movie. They could have done it when Dylan was looking in the mirror and admiring himself, but instead they actually waited until Ben and Molly were together. The makeup was... Uh, not that great. Actually, it's pretty shitty. The scene was pretty rushed. Like, in terms of... I'm not saying that it was shot rushed. It was like a quick... Uh, we're gonna show it in real fast cutaway. So... They must have used the makeup budget somewhere else in this film. Possibly in story, too. Hint, hint. Wink, wink. So after Dylan was rushed back, he would rush back into the room with Molly and Ben. We fade into a light being flashed into Dylan's face. It's Molly, and she wants Dylan to follow her for some reason. She takes him into the creepy room, looking like she just wants to bang him or something. She doesn't really seem the type of girl that would do just that. Oh, yeah, she wants to bang Dylan. Why was he the first choice? Uh, is that because he's some Asian guy and he'd be much more exotic? Or it's because his girlfriend Caprice is such like a wild child and he must be down for anything? Even banging him in the room where two kids were killed? Molly, you're pretty fucked up right there. Well, Dylan actually turns out to be a good guy and shoots her ass down saying he has a girlfriend. That Take that, you creepy bitch. So what does she do? Well, she shakes the crosses on the walls... And, of course, the scene fades to black. And then we're back in the nativity scene with Ben being woken up. Of course, he asks the hard-hitting questions. Where's Dylan? In the room. That room? What's he doing there? He wanted me to join him, but... I wanted to stay here with you. He also notices that Molly is no longer wearing underwear and wonder if she's gotten colder. 
seriously, dude, she's flashing vag at you, and you have the audacity just to ask if she's colder? Maybe Dylan was the better guy. Well, so much for foreplay, by which I mean uh, there's absolutely none. Molly and Ben get down to business. Even when I was his age, it took more than just a girl zipping down my pants to get me going. I mean, it didn't take long, but it was more than just zip, boing, and screw. After an awkward sex scene, Molly comes back to her senses and realizes that she just fucked the sound guy. I guess that's what it's like when a groupie fucks the bass player. Am I right? Huh? Huh? She blames Ben for having sex with her, and he freaks out a bit, running to find Dylan. She asks him not to go, and he runs away anyway. As they rush down the hallway, there's this weird scene of a woman giving birth with some weird nuns around her. I mean, kind of reflecting that this place used to be, you know, a place where unmarried pregnant women went. And Ben finds Dylan in the creepy room and proceeds to lock them in the door when random baby sounds start filling the air. Mind you, at this point, Ben uh, realizes that Dylan has a giant cross through his fucking head. He confronts Molly for what she's done, and she comes to the realization. Grace wants me to carry her son. Who? That 15-year-old girl who tried to get rid of her baby. This is her room. Molly, where are you getting this from? Connor and Jenna wouldn't help her, but you and I did. I'm going to have her child. To which Ben then realizes... You brought us down here. You fucked me. And you killed Dylan! Yay, you finally realized it? Well, Grace then suddenly appears and helps crucify Ben to the wall. As Molly gets closer to him, the pressure kind of gets to Ben and his neck snaps, affixing him to the wall. Molly then leaves the room... And the way outside is open. That's right, everyone. This is a story about a ghost who wants to make a teenage girl a single mom for the rest of her life. That dude wasn't even a bad dude. He just wasn't ready for the stress of being a teenage dad. But no, she has to kill him because he was made, uh, he was just used to make the baby. Moral of the story, it's not safe to stick your dick in a woman possessed by a crazy ghost. All right, what's up, Mr. Shat? Magical time of year, but in Bailey Downs this Christmas, it's different. It's gotta be. It's true, my friends, and you know it is. So before I put another jingle in your stocking, I want you to think about the little ones in your life and give a thought to the little ones who aren't with us anymore. Yeah, this next one's for them, for Jenna and Connor from... St. Joseph's Academy, taken from us last year, cruelly. I know they're listening. Somewhere out there. So story two starts as a spinoff from the first story, in which lead the lovely family of Caprice. Okay, we're not in St. Bart's for Christmas. That's fine. Or even Aspen. That's okay, look, I just wanted to have some bonding time. You hear that? I want this to be a happy, loving family. So you want a Christmas miracle? That's right, they're all bitches and fucking annoying. They're also on their way to see the dad, Taylor's, aunt for the holiday, but something seems a little off. Seems that he wants to see if she can invest in his company some, and why not bring the kids along for the venture capital fun? Inside the aunt's house, 
The decor is unbelievable. Look at this place. It's like Paul Bunyan and Count Dracula gayed up and built a dream home. Hey, it's not that bad of a house. It's kind of this rustic and has that old creepo factor that you don't see very often in crazy old lady houses. Before pointing out the decor, though, the aunt yells at the youngest, Duncan, while he plays with the Krampus figurine. Dad takes the aunt to the other room to discuss business disguised as getting back on her good side, since her and his mom didn't seem to get along very well. The daughter pockets something from her house, a lighter maybe, I wasn't quite sure, and what seems to be, uh, like out of nowhere, the groundsman, Gerhardt, pops up to scold Duncan and tell him the history of Krampus. This is Krampus, right? What's a Krampus? He's like an anti-Santa Claus, a demon who punishes the naughty. He whips them, chains them up, throws them in a sack, stuff like that. On Krampus knocked, the demon hunts the wicked from sunset to sunrise. That's fine. He comes for little boys who touch things they shouldn't. Oops. Duncan! That was very unwise. As you can see, Duncan is just a little shit, and he knocks the Krampus figure off the table and manages to break it. This gets Gerhardt pretty upset right at the moment that Taylor and his aunt come back into the room. Can I say that Gerhardt's accent is horrible? It's like a bad fucking German accent that wavers a bit here and there. It's like I I tried to do ein German accent. See, I fucking failed there. Most German that I know comes from actors like Alan Rickman from Die Hard or Jeremy Irons from Die Hard 3. Wait, I think I know all my German that comes from both of these. Well, this figurine's now broken and Gerhard is pretty fucking upset. And the family, guess what? They're fucked! If you didn't guess this already, this is a Krampus story. So the family is driving back from the aunt's house and Taylor's wife, Diane, badgers Taylor about how he tried to hustle the aunt out of her money. He spouts some corporate bullshit about how innovative his company is, to which the family mimics. Out of nowhere, this white thing runs in front of the car and forces them to crash into the side of the road. They get out and then they start to travel to the forest back to the aunt's place to maybe get some help with their car. This is when Duncan comes up with a brilliant idea. We should make weapons. What? In case whatever dad nearly hit comes and hunts us, the sun has set. It is officially Krampus knocked. The night of Krampus. Son, that Krampus is a load of old German bullshit. Holy shit! A Krampus chain comes out of the woods and slashes poor Taylor across the belly. Though originally I thought it was the chest. Duncan runs out to get the light that they were using, but he gets his bitch ass snatched up by Krampus. Caprice and Diane run after Duncan where he was dragged out to when the light suddenly goes out. Caprice grabs the stick because, yeah, that'll help you against a demon that has bladed chains that just ripped your dad's belly apart. Taylor appears to give us yet another jump scare, and the counter keep going, keeps going. And then Krampus screams, and it flows throughout the forest. They run through the woods after the dad stumbles, stumbles again, and then falls, and lands right in front of some abandoned church. Stumble, stumble, fall. Stumble, stumble, fall. So, sure that you'll that'll save you from Krampus. A church. Krampus don't give a fuck about your church's son. Inside, Caprice tries to convince Diane and Taylor that what's chasing them actually is Krampus. Mom, what if it really is Krampus? We have to stay in this church until sunrise. That is insane. Let's go. Yeah, it is. Taylor is quickly convinced that it is, but Diane is not quite sure. 
Taylor believes that if they confess their sins in the church, that they'll be allowed to live, so he starts wanting to repent. Caprice talks about her stealing habit, but it's... But honest, I'm not as bad as, as those other kids with the sex and the drugs and the cutting and... Yeah, because all those teens do nothing but go and slut it up, uh, take drugs, and cut them fucking selves. She just lets her man feel her ass up right in front of everyone with her parents in the car in front of them. Fucking hypocrite. She even goes out of her way to tell her that her mom, that Duncan was the bad kid, and he killed all the family pets. Who does that? What, uh, what does this add to this story? Absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. It just shows that he was a bad kid that we already knew, just by his actions earlier in the film. Diane blames this all on Taylor, who confesses that his business is just a front, and he only raises money so they can have nice things. He sees her as someone who will only stay with him if he gives her nice things. She realizes that he still cares for her, and when she didn't think that he did anymore. Krampus. Bringing families together so they can die since 2000 BCE. Well, after this uh, revelation from both Taylor and Diane, Krampus snatches up Taylor with his chains and the girls run into the confessional. Silly girls, you can't hide in there. Krampus gonna give it to ya. He gonna give it to ya. Krampus gonna give it to ya. He gonna give it to ya. Oh, sorry. Uh, my DMX came out. Uh, Krampus manages to stick his tongue under the door, and then Caprice stabs it into place. Diane distracts Krampus long enough for Caprice to run away, but alas, he just tears Diane in two and kills her instantly. I do have to point out here that this movie's makeup budget went right into Krampus. His makeup looks really good, and is the most practical makeup when he's not moving. So, he's CG when he moves around, and it moves around really quick, and he can't quite tell what's going on, but here... When he's still, the makeup looks very, very good. Caprice then runs back to her aunt's house, which is now closed up, so she can't really get in. Krampus comes bearing down on her, but then she stabs that fool in the throat. She notices there's a bunch of gas on the ground uh, from the chainsaw, and I guess it was a lighter. She grabs the lighter from her pocket and torches that some bitch Krampus. While he's burning, he turns into Gerthal, who I, I guess was Krampus? Wait, how does that work out, now that it's almost dawn? It is almost dawn. We will be safe. Shouldn't we try and fix this to trap him again? Whatever do you mean? Well, isn't that how he got out? When Duncan broke it? Oh, no, dear. This just an ornament. Then how did Gerhardt turn into it? Krampus is a Christmas spirit. And like your father said... The Christmas spirit can fill anyone. But if your heart is blackened with anger and vindictiveness, then this spirit will fill it until you become a hellish beast, a hunter of the wicked. Gerhardt's anger let it in and... He came after us. Mm. So you can turn to Krampus if you're mad enough? So he's some sort of like Christmas holiday spirit incredible Hulk. He just goes from body to body if you're angry enough, but instead of fighting injustice and the abomination, he kills people who are total assholes? Well, sign me the fuck up! Turn my ass into Krampus right now! Uh, but yet, I haven't fallen to the dark side yet. Uh. 
It's also at this point that Caprice realizes that dear old Auntie was afraid of what Garrett Holt was going to do to her if he was left in her presence when he turned into Krampus. Basically, he was going to use her, the she was going to use the family, I should say, uh, to, to get killed so she didn't get killed by Krampus because I guess maybe she has a black heart too. So she kicked Garrett Holt out of the house so that he turned to Krampus and killed the family. This pisses off Caprice to no end. So she accepts Krampus into her heart and slaughters her aunt, and we end the second story. Hey, Shep, what you up to? Bailey Downs, it's getting closer, and we're counting down to Christmas, and Dangerous Dan is pulling his annual double shift to stay with you until the end. What? What? We're uh, Okay, well, we're going to check in with good old Stormer Norman down at the Charity Food Drive. Hey, Norman. Normie. You're a little, uh, little scratchy there, buddy. What? I did press the button, Susan. Why don't you press your own button? Ah! Sorry, folks. Looks like we got some of those winter weather technical difficulties. Too many reindeer in the atmosphere. <laughs> That's my bet. So let's uh, throw another eggnog on the fire. No, wait a minute. Let's, uh, let's throw another log on the fire. And pour yourself another eggnog, you know. Get some good Christmas vibes. Out to Susan, who is seriously harshing my buzz right now. And listen to this holly, jolly classic. So now we're going to start what I think is the weakest story. Not in terms of length or storytelling. It's that it's so fucking boring. I dreaded when this one came back on. It just wasn't really my cup of tea, and it takes up a big portion of the movie along with the first story. So let's get started. The third story tells the tale of a cop, Scott, and he's from the first video from the first story, and we see also his family. Uh, he's taken Will, his son, and Kim, uh, his wife, down to the forest to cut down a Christmas tree. Not here. What do you mean, not here? Oh, baby, look at those. Huh? Now tell me you won't find the perfect Christmas tree. Look, they're right through here. Great. Nice example for a cop, Scott. In the middle of nowhere. No one's gonna even know we're here. Should also be noted that Will has asthma and he has an inhaler that may or may not come back uh, later on in the film. He's not that bad of a guy, right? He just wants to go into a restricted area and make accomplices of his wife and kid to his crime of stealing a Christmas tree. That's not that bad, is it? As a cop, he probably shouldn't be. Walking back to the car, Will gets distracted and walks away from his parents. They're the best parents in the world and didn't notice until he's actually gone. I mean, come on. You should have had him walk in front of you, not behind you, when you're going through a very like dark and kind of creepy forest. Especially if Kim didn't want to be there. Wouldn't she have her kid like held right next to her? Another weird thing crosses the screen, which, besides jump scares, this seems to be the other biggest trick that they use in this film. Every story so far has had a ton of jump scares and something flash upon the screen. While these best parents find Will's inhaler near the tree that's randomly in the forest out in the open. All the other trees kind of look like those thin trees, and this one's like a big oak tree with a huge opening. I mean, it doesn't look conspicuous at all, does it? So Scott looks into the tree and sees nothing, only to be jump-scared by Will, who is now gone mute. 
Kim gets mad at Scott once he starts to scold Will for running off with him. Don't yell at him. It was your idea to come out here. They all get back in the car and head back to their place. So now once back at home, Scott tries to bond with Will, but he's gone full weirdo kid. I wasn't around much last Christmas, I know. This year we're having fun, right? Well, no, not really. I mean, he doesn't want to talk to you anymore. I think he really hurt his feelings by having him go into the woods, get a Christmas tree, and then that possibly not being Will. At this point, I'm figuring that they should have figured out that it's not Will by the inhaler missing, but then again, they don't really seem that bright. In the dining room, not Will is housing down his food like he's Garfield at a lasagna eating contest. He's just shoveling into his mouth and won't even stop even if his parents ask him and goes as far as to stab the fakest hand in all of cinema. Well, maybe not all of cinema. Uh, Mom then yells at him, so she can yell at him, but Dad can't? Oh, I see who wears the pants in this family. And he proves, uh, and he goes into his room proving that Dad's words don't mean shit. This, of course, leads to a random shower scene with Kim but no nudity, gotta keep it PG-13 here, come on guys. And of course, Creepy McCreeperson, not Will, comes in on her while she's drying off. Kim goes back to talk to Scott with the big revelation that no one saw coming. Have you noticed Will hasn't had to use his inhaler? Really? Well, it's a good thing, right? Yeah. Something seems wrong. I wish I couldn't call these things so early on. Scott tries to get some from Kim, but she totally disses him, which causes him to get liquored up in the living room. Back in the bedroom, we get a, you guessed it, disturbing scene of not Will filling up Kim, possibly giving her the shocker, but I can't quite be sure. Kim freaks out naturally after some pleasure and checks in on not Will. She notices that the window is open and closes it, and we see that not Will is a weird white fetus monster looking thing. It's pretty shitty makeup, which, like before, I think was all used on Krampus. Back in the living room, drunk Scott wakes up on the couch and sees that the presents have been opened, especially the one that he was going to give his wife, and I don't mean the D because she rejected that one. Scott rushes to Will's, well, yeah, Will's room, I guess at this point, because it's not Will, but it's still Will's room, and gives him the what for. Where is he? Will! There you are. Baby, don't, don't. Did you open those presents? Did you? Say something! Scott! Hey, this is a game? What are you doing? Games? Say something. Look at him. I think it's all one big fucking joke. Scott! Think this is funny? No! Move. No! 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 Don't! Stop! I knew this would happen! You refused to see a doctor. You said you can handle it! I... Did you not see what he did? Get out! Do you think this is a fucking game? Oh, well, child abuse. The only way to make children learn right. Just get that belt out and whoop some ass to teach some manners. Child abuse. Fully indoors. Dun, 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 dun. No, not really. But it seems like Scott has a problem with alcohol and beating his child. So Kim ultimately does get mad at Scott for his ass-whooping of not Will, and then he goes back to drink some more. Meanwhile, Gil- Kim gets a call from some random hillbilly. Did something happen to your boy? He got lost, but we found him later. 
No, you didn't. He's still lost. Now we haven't got much time, so you're gonna have to do as I say. Bring the changeling back to the forest where you lost your son. Changeling? What the hell is that? Ma'am, that ain't your son. Really? I think we already know that he ain't their son. Even though Kim can't notice that, but she refuses to listen to that hillbilly anymore. I swear that Kim will be the death of them because that's her little angel. We get some scenes of Scott looking over the case of the kids who died the previous year, and Kim is looking up changelings on Google. If she didn't believe him, then why on God's green earth is she looking them up? Suddenly, Notwell comes out from the bedroom and begins to stalk Scott. It should be noted here that both Scott and Kim have some sort of shinin with their son Will. They always seem to feel his presence and turn around when he pops up, though most of the time he's just not there. Like now. He's on the ceiling, waiting to pounce on Scott so that he can kill him to some pleasant Christmas music. Kim runs out to the living room with a bat and sees that Scott is dead, with his severed hand cut from his body. He goes in, She goes into the bathroom to call the hillbilly. You're ready to listen now. What do I do? Listen good. You gotta bring the creature back to the grove. But you gotta be careful, it won't come willingly. It's tasted human pleasures. What about Will? The only way is to bring the changeling back. But don't let it sense your intention, it senses things. It cannot feel threatened. I'll be waiting. So she needs to get this little shit back to the forest to get her son back. But can't show that she has negative intentions to not Will. What's the best way to do that? Maybe you give him some, like, sleepy time tea, or you bait him with candy. Nope. While Will is playing itsy bitsy spider with Scott's severed hand, she brings out the bat and bashes him in the face at least twice. And mind you, she has a very nice swing. And then she beats not Will until it's unconscious. That's the way to handle it. Hey, guess what? I have no negative to... Bah! 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 Okay. So she manages to get it into a sack and takes it back out to the place where they got the tree. Somehow she was able to get back to the big oak tree in the dead of night and begins to barter for her son, gun in hand. Multiple changelings surround Kim, but Hillbilly uh, lets her know that he's some sort of, like, changeling herder. It's alright, they're not gonna test you as long as I'm here. They're afraid of me. I know how to hurt them. Hurt them good. Patrol's been on our land for generations. <laughs> I guess you could say I watch over them. Thanks for bringing this one back. It would have sensed me coming from a mile away. She asks for her son back only to find out that the hillbilly actually lied to her and doesn't know if she'll ever be able to get Will back. When the changelings start to close in on her, she starts wildly firing and manages to kill the hillbilly. This makes all the changelings rejoice and they give her back her son. And that possibly is the happiest ending in this film, leading us to our second to last, well, are two second-to-last Shatner cameos. It's complete and utter chaos down at the mall. Police and emergency crews are on the scene. We don't really know what's going on. And still no word from Storm and Norman. But I'm sure a crusty old bird like Norman will be fine. We give Norm a hard time around here, but he's the weatherman. So I think he has a master's degree from Columbia or something depressing like that. But we love him. So check in as soon as you can, Normie. 
In the meantime, it's my job to keep the Christmas spirit alive, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. Let's give this next Yuletide tune a spin. Police are telling uh, people just to stay away, all right? Just keep clear of them all. And I know a lot of you are worried about your friends and family. Well, the best thing you can do is just stay put and pray for a Christmas miracle. Still no word on how many hostages there may be down there, but, uh, but just, just stay at home for the love of God. So now we begin our fourth and final story of the film. I'm warning you now, there's a big plot twist that I'm going to spoil, so be warned. Earlier I talked about the film, uh, how it started at Santa's Fortress of Solitude. Well, this is that story. When we first saw Santa, he was talking to his reindeer, and when he turned around, he had this giant gash across his face that was unexplained. Also, before we cut to Shatner for the first time, this big door was about to open, and then this bright light flooded uh, the room, blinding both Santa and the viewer. Now, when Santa's story starts, it's 12 hours before the first scene in the movie. This is also my favorite out of all the stories in this film, and sadly, it's the shortest and moves very fast. But I know why this story moves like it does after finishing the film, and you'll kind of understand a little more after I kind of give away the big spoiler. More will become clear as Santa's story moves on, and we move towards the end of this film. We open in Santa's badly CGI'd workshop to reveal some elves preparing for Santa's departure. Of course, in Santa's world, it's safety first. So, what are we up against this year, Jingles? There's a blizzard warning along the eastern seaboard. Never been a blizzard that troubled me. It's bad. It's really bad. Another signature here. I'm worried about the trade winds. Trade winds. Safety first, Santa. Great, great, great here in the Lots of kids are depending on tonight going off without a hitch. Uh. Mrs. Claus, who looks pretty damn hot for this Santa, comes in to bring the elves some cookies to get their energy up. This, of course, doesn't appeal to Shiny the Elf at all. I said I don't want a goddamn cookie! You reindeer fucking snowhorse! What a fucking mouth on that little motherfucker. Santa should teach that bitch some manners. But Shiny manages also to slice his own hand and begins to spray blood over all of the elves and Mrs. Claus. Jingles looks up at Santa and asks, Hey, he's dead. Oh, no. Dead? No. But elves... Can't die. Santa, elves can't die, right? No. They cannot. Who the fuck said that? Santa, stop feeding these elves lies and let them know they can die just like everyone else. Fuck, if a unicorn can die, a fucking elf can die. You can't baby these little guys forever, Santa. I'm on to you. Next, we see Santa going to Mrs. Claus's office, claiming that the elves have been infected. Martha, thank God. What's going on? It's the elves. I fear they may all become infected. There's only one way to get a zombie elves. Sharpen your beating stick and fuck their shit up. In the middle of talking to Mrs. Claus, some of the zombie elves break through the door. Holy shit! When these elves get infected, they get a huge fucking potty mouth on them. So Santa then begins to chop off elf heads, throw them through some of the windows, and ultimately act like like an action hero of the century. Fuck, 
Why don't they just get some washed-up action star to be Santa? Or even get somebody like Stallone or maybe Arnold. I mean, they probably didn't have the budget for somebody like that. But he would have been kicking ass and taking names. No elf is going to ba- break this Santa's stride. So Santa then goes down the hallway and makes a break for the elevator. Well, making a break is relative. And it comes complete with elevator music. And when more elves all of a sudden start running down the hallway. Sparkles even tries to go after Santa to taste that sweet, sweet Santa flesh. Yet again, he also runs into Shiny and his filthy potty mouth. I'm gonna eat your fucking brains out, you Christmas cunt. Fuck you! I'll break that fucking stuff in your rosy cheeked ass, you fucker! I'm sorry, Shiny. I'm not what isn't your fault. Santa takes him out with one fell stab to the stomach and then Jingles comes after him again. He takes to the shipping area to kind of escape some more of the elves. And of course, there's more zombie elves there for him to kill. He uses a paper cutter to cut off the elf heads. He uses another elf's head to smash in the head of a different elf. It's like a 1980s action movie up in here, and Santa's the leader of the pack. He meets back up with Miss Claus, but alas, she has started to turn as we found out that she's the one who gave Santa the slash across the face we saw at the beginning of the film. He has to kill his poor wife, but at least she's no longer a zombie. We flash back to the beginning of the movie, where we find the bright light was another than... Krampus again? Jesus Christ, I guess they didn't want their assets to go to waste. Well, he's back with a vengeance, and Santa declares, We end this tonight. They fight and struggle for a bit, but Santa gets the upper hand and slices off Krampus's horns. Then the twist happens. Now, do you remember someone from the start of this film? Someone that had held up a sign that said, Fuck Christmas. Now, did you also catch what was going on in the last Shatner clip that I played? Well, as you've noticed, Shatner starts out very, very happy and slowly but surely gets more drunk as the movie moves along. He starts out with a little bit of nog and a little bit of bourbon to nothing but bourbon towards the end of the movie. Well, the way the movie that was woven the way it is, I I didn't really notice it either. And it kind of allowed me to be tricked and surprised with the biggest reveal in the movie. And, and that's really saying something to the film itself, because it's an okay movie, but it just presented itself in a way that I didn't see this reveal coming. Santa's really Norman, who has gone on a killing spree at the mall that Shatner's been talking about. All those elves were people and employees in the mall, and Norman was just fucking slaughtering them all. Even Mrs. Claus was some woman, possibly Sally on the news team, I'm not sure, and he ended up cornering her into a dark place and killing her. It all makes sense that most of Santa's scenes were just these silly little action scenes and relatively short. It allows you to be fooled into think that, hey, it's just a silly Santa finding zombie story. If you're not paying attention to Shatner and his little speeches, you might miss it all or, well, just dismiss it as some ramblings of a guy getting drunker and drunker. Krampus was just another random guy that he was attacking in the bright light. Well, that was the cops busting in and firing upon Norman for all the killing that he had done. Once he realizes what's going on, it's too late, and he's shot by the police. We then end on the last sad line from Mr. Shatner, and the film, of course, closes. What the hell is it about Christmas, Bailey Downs? Are we cursed or something? 
Why does this season of love and peace and goodwill keep ending in blood and death and horror? You keep the spirit in your hearts, you hear me, people? You hug your loved ones and you keep them close and you treat them every Christmas like it might be your last. Now, that wasn't as terrible as I thought it would be. Easily the worst part is how the stories kept jumping around. It just wasn't for my taste, though I did enjoy that everyone from Dangerous Dan to Caprice to Will to Not Will was all connected in some way. It was even revealed that Shatner's Dan was the grandfather of Caprice and Duncan. In one of the scenes, he pulls the card out and it shows the family sitting there as a, we love you and miss you, Grandpa. That part I actually really loved. And I like the Krampus and Santa stories the best. I wish there were more of these, but the pacing of those two were... uh, were, They were good for this type of film, but the first story was just kind of weird, and it came out really ridiculous. And the third, to me, was just really boring. The characters I didn't care for, and backstories not so fleshed out. Was Scott an alcoholic because of the case? Uh, he said something about not being able to spend a whole long time with his family, and that's because of the line of work they was in. Did his son hold disdain for him? I don't know. Things just kind of got thrown out there. There's a couple of things. You know, the Duncan killing the kids, or not kids, I should say, the pets. You know, a couple of things in the first story. It's like they, they try to do these backstories, and nothing really came out of them. The actress also who played Kim was pretty wooden as well. Each story could have benefited from either being told all at the same time or fleshing out the backstories just a little bit more with the exception of the fourth story with Santa. And before, I said that it wasn't connected, but I didn't want to give anything away. You know, with Norman being connected to Dangerous Dan, that's how you kind of connect everybody to everything. Now, is there something saying that the stories are all just connected to the overarching Santa story and all these people that are involved in it, they are being killed uh, by Norman and maybe experiencing something else. I don't know. We could have a, uh, you know, a narrator that we can't believe. And who's narrating the story? Well, it's definitely Shatner in this case. So the, the fourth one made the most sense to be really short, as it was mostly just Norman going around and killing fools in the mall. So... I give this movie, uh, the gore gets a 4 out of 5, as there were some truly gory parts, especially in the Santa killing the elves part, and then a couple of scenes with, um, like, the severed hand and and things. They weren't really done really well, but there were still some pretty good gory parts. Uh, The fun factor in this movie is a 2 out of 5, as... The format and the stories could use some work. I know there's another film made by this company that also has a similar format for Halloween, and I might check that out next year in October. Um, 
the crap factor is a two out of five as the production actually you know what it was done pretty well though the makeup could have been done better the music was great uh it wasn't really cheesy i mean they did do things really well and like i said there was a jump scare that got me and normally those things don't get me also, my final count of jump scores, uh, jump scares at the end of the movie was about 15, and going through and grabbing some clips, I think I missed some. I think it could have been in the 20s range. It just seems like when they wanted to scare you, they were just jump scaring you, and that's that's not very fun, nor is it inventive. But I think that the stories were interesting enough and could have been done better as a solid piece of work. Overall, I give this film three Madman Sanders out of five. Is it a terrible new movie? No. But it's not a good movie either. At best, it's just mediocre. It's worth a watch if you need a decent holiday horror movie because I think that the Santa segment and the Krampus segment are completely worth watching. And even the first one uh, with the ghost teenager uh, that wants some other teenagers to have a baby and the mom to be a single teenage mom forever... It's got some good parts to it, but really, I dreaded the third one. It was just so slow and so boring, uh, and the parents were complete and fucking morons. And I know horror movies, people being idiots, that's just something that normally happens, but it seems like it was horrible in other many other ways. So, for next week, uh, I got another suggestion, and we're going to watch a trauma classic. Nightmares live in the darkest nether regions of your desire. There awaits the evil clutch. Within these peaceful rolling hills, something breathes. Something ancient. Something evil. Two young lovers on the vacation of their lives suddenly must face the deadliest force in the universe, a demon which will possess them, take their love, steal their souls, and finally devour them. Evil Clutch. Andreas Mofori and the talented young producer Agnesa Fontana comes a hellish vision of ultimate terror. Evil Clutch. Innovative cinematography and revolutionary special effects leap from the screen, pulling you right into the pulse-pounding horror. Terrifying ancient secrets have been reborn within Evil Clutch. The nightmare that grabs you where you least expect it. Evil Clutch from Troma. If you didn't catch the name of the film in that promo, the movie is Evil Clutch, and you can rent it 
uh, or buy it on Amazon or I Amazon Amazon or iTunes. Uh, I'm not sure if you can rent it on iTunes. I know you can rent it on, rent it on Amazon Instant. Uh, this was suggested by the guys of the Projection Booth Podcast. They're at ProBoothCast on Twitter. Uh, you can catch their podcast on iTunes, or you can go to projection.booth.com. Projection-booth.com. Not .booth.com. That will lead you to the wrong location. As for me, you can always find me on Twitter at T underscore T underscore podcast. You can email the movie idea, your movie ideas to me at terribleterrorpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to contact me directly on Twitter, you can contact me. It's at T00LBERT. That's Tilbert with zeros instead of O's. You can always listen to It Be Like That with my co-host Patrick. Uh, and that is available uh, on the same page on Spreaker as this podcast of iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, uh, where we are also found. So, don't forget that next week, uh, or not, I should say next week, but the next episode is going to be Evil Clutch that will lead us into the new year. I wish everybody a happy holiday, Merry Christmas, and I hope you guys have a wonderful new year, and I look forward to all the things that will happen next year. Bye-bye. Don't forget to watch Evil Clutch. Ciao. Let's go to the phones. Hey, look, if they just had more police training, then stuff like this. You think more police can do anything, man? Are you, are you, are you, it's Christmas. There are magical dark forces out there. People wake up. It's a beautiful season. It's light and it's dark and it's yin and it's yang. For our Asian friends out there, and you know who you are. Yeah, I, I said Asian, right? I didn't say Oriental, right? Well, I don't know. You tell me which is offensive. I'm a Christmas expert. It's 11 lords a-leapin' and 10, ma- 10 maids a-milkin'. No, 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 don't go to the goop. Don't you Google that. I hate it. We as a society can't go five minutes without looking looking up a... Uh, no, wait a minute, somebody's texting me. Oh, it's 11 pipers piping. I'm way off, I'm sorry. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs>